0: Turn so with me in Scripture to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east. Three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, twelve thousand furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height were equal. Then he measured his wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of his wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald. The fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysoprase; the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, The tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. God add his blessing. This reading of his word. On these last chapters of the book of Revelation, we are discovering more about the glories of heaven, the things that God has in store, these things that we cannot fully even imagine now, but which the word of God declares to us very plainly. And one of the great things that we'll have is something that we tend to take for granted here on earth, and that is light. Light. Now, light is no minor thing in the Bible as part of the, one of the central features of the whole grand scope, was the sweep, the history of redemption from the very beginning part of creation until the very end, light plays a central role. And I think we all know that one of the very first verses in the Bible, Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. That was its original condition. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And that light, of course, was both physical and spiritual. From the very beginning, he didn't say, by the way, let there be a sun, but let there be light. And there was light before there was a sun or any other heavenly body. And that light, as we find more of in this very chapter in the end, is the very glory of God itself. And that light that was both physical and glorious, the glorious presence of God that extended to God's close communion with his own creatures in the Garden of Eden. There was nothing impeding that communion, this, this great God walking with his creatures in the cool of the day. And they had that light there. They had the physical sun as well, but they had the Lord himself. But sadly, men soon fell into sin and into darkness and this darkness was great on the earth, you know, that it brought the wrath of God and, and the great flood that destroyed all but Noah and his his family and those animals that were saved. And I think that in one of the Exodus plagues, you see this curse of darkness that is uh, made so material. It says in Exodus ten twenty one: Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be Darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And this is a picture of exactly the situation now on earth. This whole world is filled with darkness, it is darkness that can even be felt. I don't know if you've sometimes experienced that in places where particularly the gospel is very dim and there is not much to be seen and there is, as it were, a darkness that can be felt. But this is at least a a typological picturing of that situation, that they are absolutely spiritually helpless. They cannot see God. They cannot see one another. They can do no good spiritually whatsoever. They are slaves to this darkness and the darkness has engulfed this whole world. And with a few the only exception being the children of Israel, the children of God, the covenant people that have the light of his word upon them. And that's our that was the situation then dawning when Christ came. That's why when God prophesied about the coming of the Messiah, he said in Isaiah nine two, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now we are the people who have lived in this darkness. And we ought to know of all people that to have the light is the greatest of gifts. And that the greatest of all these gifts that could possibly be given is Christ himself, the source of that light, who was given to the world and another prophecy prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 6 I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. You know that that's the situation. Then, If if previously it was a whole world in complete Stygian darkness that could be felt, and it was only the children of Israel, God's particular covenant people, who had the light at all, and they were very localized in a single place, and few in number... And with the coming of Christ, he is going to be a light to the Gentiles. And that light is going to be increasing. And he's going to be establishing his covenant with people all over the world. And there will be these centers of light then, of these places and people that have heard the gospel and received it. And and Christ is bringing light to the world. In John 8.12, and Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of the world. Of life. That is our situation. That is what Christ has come to give to us. He is the light of the world. And those who follow him will not remain in darkness. But rather they are going to embrace him. They are going to embrace the light. And they are going to walk in it. Now I think it is only those who understand. Understand the darkness. Those who have experienced the darkness around them, those who experience the darkness in themselves, only you can understand just how wonderful a thing this light truly is. It's only those who have seen the light of Christ, who have tasted the good things, of what it is like to be freed from spiritual darkness, what it is like even for a moment to walk in obedience, in joyful obedience to God's word, to walk in this light and to embrace it, that you might just understand then the great blessedness of heaven, that there is light there, and that those who are in heaven walk in it. We said at the very beginning that in the, almost the very first verse of the Bible, it's speaking of light, and so it is as we come almost to the very end of the whole word of God in our passage Revelation 21:23. the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. And then that's reiterated. In chapter 22, verse 5, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. There is going to be light in heaven. That is absolutely certain. But more to the point, more to the point of this sermon. We saw that last time, one of the glories of heaven, that the Lamb won't be a sun, won't be a moon, no other source of light, certainly no artificial light. God himself, the Lamb, will be the light. But more to the point here, we will walk in it. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. It's not just that the light is there available theoretically if you sometimes choose to avail yourself of it. It is that all of us, all the nations of the saved will certainly walk in its light. And perhaps, as I said, it's only those who have experienced the darkness and have tasted the light that have a general appreciation for the light. I think it is all the more so for us who have an impartial obedience in this life. Those who struggle on the way of sanctification and who, to some extent, walk in the light, but also choose, for some bizarre reason, also the darkness. And we who experience this terrible tension in this current life, we can understand just what a wonderful thought, what a wonderful prophecy that will certainly be fulfilled That without a single exception for all eternity, we shall walk in the perfect light of Christ. Of all the glories of heaven, perhaps none surpassed by this thing. Christ himself will be there. He will be that light. And we're going to walk in it. That's what this sermon is about. The saved shall walk in its light. So, these three headings. First, the saved. Second, the light. And third, they shall walk in the light. The saved shall walk in its light. So, first, the saved, or rather, the nations that are saved. So, we have it in verse 24 and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. Now, this has been a theme in all of, of Revelation of the nations. And the universality of the gospel and the reality that people from everywhere are going to be part of this light. The gospel is preached to every nation, as it said in Revelation 14.6. I saw another angel flying in the midst of having, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. It is the everlasting gospel. It is not many gospels depending on the situation, depending on the context that are preached. It is one gospel, one source of light, a pure light, an everlasting gospel that does not change with time, that is preached to every nation, tribe, tongue under heaven. And it is not just that it was preached, it is that it is actually received by the power and the grace of God by representatives of all of those nations Revelation Revelation nine. after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, just as if to make us sure, make sure that we understand the diversity of the people who are going to become believers, who are going to be brought into the everlasting kingdom, not just by one nomenclature, just in case we might miss the point, not just by nations, but also tribes, and peoples, and tongues, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, Christ's righteousness, and palm branches in their hands. The gospel is going to be preached to every nation, and those of every nation will receive that. And you know that those who are worshipping, even now in heaven, are from these places. Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain. And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So when we say the nations of those who are saved, we're not speaking of one particular people anymore, just of the people of Israel who had light. Rather, it's people from all over the world who in heaven will have this light. So there are these nations, and they're the ones who are saved now, we could pass immediately by that, but I think it's worthwhile to consider that they're saved. We need to consider that what Revelation has been telling us. Because at certain points in Revelation, you'd almost get the sense that, well, who could possibly be saved from all of this? You, you, I don't need to remind you that Revelation has a, a reputation for being doom and gloom. And in some sense, in some small limited sense, I don't think it's true in the big sense, but in a limited sense you can see that in certain places as you go through because it is straight judgment. It is just pure judgment over and over and over again. And it is just and righteous judgment, that is for sure. But as you think of the trials that the people of God undergo, you think about the judgments and, per- and things that are being poured out on the whole earth, And the question just might come to you, who can possibly be saved? And these who are saved in the end are saved from a lot of things. I mean, that list is not small. You think of every chapter, what things have been encountered from the very beginning, from the letters which speak of the persecution of the outside world, which speak of the persecution of the government, which speak of persecution of false believers, of the synagogue of Satan, as it was put back there. And you say, who's not persecuting them? from every source and every corner. And not only that, that the Antichrist is trying to infiltrate their churches, as he always does, trying to take them over, trying to introduce heresy, introduce sin. And you say, and some of them were even back then, I'm going to take away your candlestick because of this apostasy, because of this compromise, if you don't repent. And you say, how can they survive? And then beyond that, all the ravages of the Antichrist and the beast, all the terrible plagues and judgments being poured out, and the final destruction of the whole world. And you say, how did anyone survive that? Through the the mighty power of God. (laughs) Through the grace of God alone, these people at the end, not just a few, but many, they really are saved. And don't pass over that little word than those who are saved, because that is an amazing thing that they are. It's not just from all those external threats, please. I mean, that's, that's just the beginning of it. Mainly, of course, from the wrath of God. That's, of course, what you and I typically mean when you talk about it, is if somebody gets saved. You mean that they're justified. They put their faith in Christ and they're saved from the wrath of God. Because that's the biggest problem. That's our real problem, isn't it? Our sin. The fact that we stand under the condemnation of a holy and just God. And they're saved from that. That's the great wonder of revelation. That's a great wonder of those people as they're looking at this lamb who appeared who looked like he'd been slain. How did it happen that he was able to open the seals and to move ahead the work of redemption? It's by his own blood. He shed out of the great love that he had for us. We're saved even from that. We're saved from the consequences of our sin because Christ took that upon himself and suffered and died for us. But one more thing, one more thing is added to that in heaven. One wonderful, glorious thing is that we're not only saved from the penalty of sin, we are saved from the presence of sin. And that would seem to be the focus here. We are already, brethren, we are already saved from, if we are in Christ, if we have put our faith in Christ, we are saved from the penalty of sin. But we're not saved from the presence of it. All around us, I don't need to tell you, there is sin. All the unsaved people around us, they are sinners. And yes, sadly, those Christians don't always walk as they should. they are sinners too. And even ourselves. And in fact, that's the worst of it, isn't it? Because we can, get, we can walk away. We can walk away from our co-workers and go home. And we can even find a quiet place away from our own families. There's no more of that sin around us. What a, but there's one last thing that we're with, right? Ourselves. Because we're sinners. And that's the worst of it. And we can't escape ourselves. And this old man that lives within us that will not fully die, that will not fully and finally be, be done away with, even though all the power, there's no more any compulsion. We're not under slavery to sin. We've been set free. Strangely, while we live in this world, we're not made absolutely perfect. And therefore, this sin dwells in us. And Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, as he experiences this terrible tension of knowing the law of God, loving Christ, desiring with all of his heart to want to serve light Christ and his law and to do what is right. And yet he finds working in him this old man yet. Well, one day you'll be saved from that. One day there'll be no presence of sin whatsoever. And I think that's the focus here. Because in verse 27 it says that there shall be by no means enter at anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There won't be the world the unsaved world the unrepentant sinful world and all their sin and all the things that distress us the bible speaks of righteous lot who was vexed by the sin of the men of the great wickedness of sodom and we don't and look lot himself was not exactly pure as the driven snow was he but as imperfect as he was He could not help but be vexed by the great wickedness around him. And if you have eyes to see it all, and particularly those of you who work as your vocation in this sector of considering these things and government and so forth, who could not be vexed in your spirit by the great wickedness of this world? But that won't be there in heaven, it'll be gone. You shall by no means enter at anything that defiles or causes an abomination. And beyond that, not only those others, but you yourself. That one thing, that situation that you can't really escape in this world, that will also be fixed and solved. Because the great thing is, and how this relates, this one point relates to the larger picture, is that they, those who are saved will walk in the light. They just won't have it available And it's not just that they'll sometimes walk according to it. They will walk in the light continuously, permanently, without exception. And they do that because they are the nations that are saved in the complete sense. Again, the word salvation is all-encompassing we get, we think of it and right, rightfully so the emphasis is always on being justified from our sin saved from the consequences of sin but final and perfect salvation is all comprehensive and it includes being saved from the very presence of sin and the nations of those who are saved finally and ultimately there is no sin among them there is no sin in them there is no sin at all they are saved from it so that was our first point These nations that are saved. But let's consider more, secondly, the light. Think about the light. Because as we've mentioned before in verse 23, this city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Now, we have these two things and... I, it's not a big deal, but I might, might as well just mention that it is the glory of God and the Lamb. The glory of God illuminated, the Lamb is in its light. So these two different words. Glory of God uh, is its light or it lightens it. It's a verb, it lightens heaven. And also the Lamb, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ, is its light or its lamp or its source of light. And you say, well, okay, is, are there two different sources of light? Is there a sort of, here's God. At, at one part of heaven and close by or some other part of heaven, there's the lamb and there are two distinct sources of light. Well, Jonathan Edwards thinks not and he, he puts it this way. The glory of God is its light in the lamb's being its light. For Christ is the brightness of God's glory. Tis by this effulgence of glory that God shines and is manifest and manifests himself here on earth. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and also then in heaven, and in the resurrection world, God still appears and manifests himself by the same brightness of his glory. So another, what, what, what we're trying to say is that the second thing, the fact that the Lamb is the lamp, the light source, it's a definition of the first thing, that God illuminates all of heaven. He does that through his Son, the Lord Jesus of Christ, who is the glory of God. This glory of God gives light to the whole place. How? Because the Lamb of God is its light source. The Lord Jesus Christ is the great lamp of heaven. So, that's the light. And we have to understand, of course, that Christ has always been the light. He's the light even now, isn't he? John 1 and 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. We know that. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. That light came. The light of Christ has dawned. He has come into this world. It's recently the time of year that we particularly consider it coming into the world. We know that the light has come. The only problem is there are many things that keep that that light from being as full as it could be. As I mentioned, not only the sin of those around us, but our own sin. But the thing is, in heaven, there will be an infinitely better environment for the light. I was just um, recently in a fairly new building, and it had these uh, uplighters. And um, they were the same sort of uplighters. I remember the church in Edinburgh that we went to. But it was a, every difference in the world of the experience of that light because of the environment that the light had. Because in Edinburgh, they pointed up into an old, dank, rough, Victorian uh, timber ceiling. And they put out a lot of light, but by the time that light got back to you, there wasn't much of it. But those same sort of uplighters in a brand new, Shiny white ceiling made of these, uh, I think they're called uh, structure integrated panels in the a, a ceiling. Just beautiful, brilliant light. Same uplighter, same source of light, but an absolutely perfect environment for experiencing that light. And it makes every difference in the world. Well, Christ is here. Christ is among us. He is given to us in His Word and His Spirit. He's not here physically, but in His Word and His Spirit, He is. And He is a source of light. And he's a wonderful light, but we'll experience that light to a far greater extent in heaven, where instead of the, the dinginess of a people who very imperfectly reflect that light, who have so many rough spots that take away from that light, instead, there'll be that perfect, sinless environment of which we experience this glorious light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a funny thing is, as I mentioned now, I'm, I'm, I'm hinting at something when I say that the biggest difference is probably going to be in us. You see, Christ isn't going to change. Maybe in some way will his glory will be manifested in a, a greater way. But perhaps the greatest difference is in us and the way that we reflect that light. But let's think about this, what it says here in, in verse 24. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. And the question is, who are these kings of the earth? It's funny that um, the, uh, the many of the commentaries at this point say, "Well, this is pointing um, to the fact that this is this is universal and at the end; that even the the kings will have to humble themselves, and they'll be bringing their great glory and honor into this into this situation." But what has Revelation itself told us so very clearly from the very beginning? The very beginning, Revelation one six, He has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. That's a verse six. And it's repeated at regular intervals throughout the whole book. Revelation 5.10, for instance, has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. Now what happens to the earthly kings? What's their situation? Quite different, isn't it? Revelation 6.15, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, this time it's making sure that we don't mix up those two things. Because it's giving all these qualifications, all these ranks, Of of leaders of men, in fact, of all of people, they hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, "Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb." That's what happens to those. That's what happens to those who are responsible for the persecution of God's church. That's what happens to, for instance, those Roman empires which seem to take such perverse delight in killing Christians. And all those who follow in their footsteps, they're not bringing their glory into heaven. Who is able to bring glory into heaven outside of Christ himself? You know, this situation that has been so firmly established throughout all, all of Revelation, it does not suddenly change at the end of the story. Now it's the earthly kings that are exalted, and they're the ones who are the privileged inhabitants of heaven? No. No, it's a continuation of what we've already seen in this chapter. The astonishing thing that part of the great wonder and perfection of heaven is that we ourselves are going to be glorious. Not some external thing, but we ourselves are going to be glorious. And it is a continuation of that amazing mystery that we've seen just so recently. In verses 9 to 11, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light. Having the glory of God and her light. goes on to describe what the light is like. But The fact is, this glory of God is her light. Who are the kings of the earth? It's, it's us. We have been made kings and priests. How is it that we can bring glory, our glory, into this place? Because God has given it to us. We have been partakers in this divine glory. We have this glory of God upon us. In a great, wonderful transfer that you know, this, what we call the double imputation. Christ took our sin, and he gave us his righteousness. And we are clothed in it. We are clothed in this righteousness. And in our sinless state of perfection, we have this glory of God. This divine glory of of holiness. We mention of all the things of God, what do we say that is a central characteristic? The most glorious thing about God, it is His holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The thing that we cannot bear even as sinful human beings to be in His presence makes us uncomfortable is His holiness. But brothers and sisters, we'll have this holiness in heaven. We already have the perfect righteousness of Christ, but there we will have also perfect sinless experience of these things. And we will shine with the glorious radiance of pure divine holiness. And the wonderful thing about heaven is that we will bring this glory of God there. Instead of Christ then being as this uplighter in a dingy church which he is now, perfect light, but imperfect reflection of it. There all around, everywhere you look, in every direction, and from every angle, there will be those perfect reflective surfaces of his people that shine with the glory of divine holiness. That will be the light in heaven. So, the reason why we don't need artificial light, it's not just, incidentally, the source that we have, of course, that's the main thing. It's not even, in some sense, a reflection of God's glory. But remember, this bride has the glory of God herself, that we are radiant with it. How silly to even think, then, that we'll need some sort of light when we are ourselves, Radiant, and everyone around us radiant with the glory of Christ's holiness. So there will be the light all right. What's more, they will walk in the light. Thirdly and finally, they will walk in this light. And all the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Now, I want us to know, first of all, as it says that they'll walk, this is a verb, this is activity, that there is going to be activity in heaven. Yes, it's a place of rest, but it's a holy rest. And that means it's a place of work, a place of holy work. Sometimes people have the wrong idea of what the Sabbath day is about, what that Sunday, what we're supposed to do. And, and yes, of course it is a resting, absolutely. But it is a holy resting that involves very often us walking to church or driving to church or whatever else. It involves those who are part of putting on the service of the officers of the church. It very often involves some kind of work, but it's a holy work. And in God's great provision, it can be restful. There is such a thing as restful work. And we often experience that on the Lord's Day. Well, you know that Sunday is just a picture. It's just a type of what's going to happen in heaven. It'll be a holy resting because it'll be a perfect holy working as well, activity. And we'll walk in this light. Not that We're not going to lie down in the light. That's not there. Remember, there's no night. We're not, it doesn't even say we're going to sit in the light. I don't say that we might not. But that's not the emphasis. The focus is on the fact that we're going to be walking in this light worshiping in this light, carrying on whatever perfect, wonderful, holy work it is that the Lord would have us to do in heaven. Now, walking, of course, is something that requires light. We saw that wonderful picture in Exodus of this terrible plague of darkness, so great that it could be felt that they could not do anything. They couldn't even walk around. Now, thankfully, we haven't really experienced that kind of Darkness, remember in the YP camp, but not so long ago, we went down to the cave. And in that very, very, very dark cave, after you turn a couple of corners, eventually you come to a place where there is no natural light. And as I remember, all we could do was sit there, because you could not do anything, you could not move around. And how we were grateful for the return of light in such a situation. Activity, useful activity, requires light. Light. And that's the situation then when Jesus says in John eleven nine, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the light, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. You need light in order to walk around. Otherwise, you're going to stumble and fall. Well, when we have this great light, when we have the light of Christ, we are able to walk perfectly. You know, that's so much of this situation, and First John seems a long time ago, doesn't it? But you think of the continual, if, if light is a big part of the Gospel of John, it's even more so in the letter of John. In First John, and you remember that new commandment in First John 2. A new commandment I write to you which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. A beautiful thought, you know. We, we rightly have a realistic view of this world. and We don't try to make things more optimistic than they really are. And, and the, what we have in, in Revelation, what we have in eschatology is a mixed picture, isn't it? There's going to be a lot of trouble and a lot of persecution and all the rest of it. But the overall picture that we must understand is that the darkness is passing away. And whether it's going to have one last great hurrah towards the end of even temp- greater temporary darkness. The point is that the overall trajectory of this is that the darkness is passing away because Christ is going to put a complete end to it in the end. The darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. Now, here's where we start to transition then to thinking about what we're supposed to do about this in the moment. It says, he who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now primarily we're speaking of what's happening in the new heavens and the new earth, and we're speaking about the reality that we can all walk around. We can walk around and do the wonderful activity, the holy working and the holy resting that God has for us because we have the light. That's the primary sense. And as we think about that picture, as we imagine what it would be like to walk in perfect light, to have this undimmed view of Christ constantly before our eyes and all around us these perfect reflections of His perfect holiness and we ourselves even This picture of perfect holiness. And you can just imagine walking from place to place. In this perfectly clean place. Of the new heavens and the new earth. And there is no possibility of stumbling. There is no possibility of causing anyone else to stumble. And you say hallelujah. Don't we look forward to that. Hallelujah. There is no darkness at all. And no possibility of encountering darkness. No possibility of emulating someone else in their darkness or you yourself causing someone to stumble by your own sin. And I think the point of transition is for us to imagine what that looks like now. You know, walking in the light, that means holiness. That means obedience. Ephesians 5, 8 says, You were once darkness that's an interesting thing. It wasn't just that you were once around darkness. It wasn't even that you were once immersed in darkness. And both of those things are absolutely true. It says you were once darkness. Because just like there are sources of light. Just like Christ himself is a great source of light. And just like we in heaven are also sources of light in our holiness. So it is that there are sources of darkness in this world. Satan, in some sense, that great and ultimate source of darkness, but all those who follow him, all those who imitate him, all those who are enslaved by him and an influence in various ways, they are also little sources of darkness, and such were you. Such were some of us who lived in that situation. We didn't just witness darkness around us. We weren't just witness to the crime, we were the criminal. We weren't just suffering from the darkness, we were the source of darkness. And we caused other people to stumble, didn't we? You were once darkness, but now you are the light of the world. Walk as children of light. See, that's, that's the imperative. That's the command. The situation is very clear. It wasn't just that once you were around, the, 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 you fell into the, the wrong crowd, you were the, the wrong crowd. You were that source of darkness to yourself and to other people. And you gladly listened to what Satan said. You weren't trying to escape from it. you loved it, sadly. But now you're children of light, and you should light. you should walk in that light. you should embrace that light. you should be children of light for the fruit of the spirit. Is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Finding it out in activity, an inclination, a desire, and a diligent searching out what it is acceptable to light. And that's why it makes no sense for some Christians to say, I- I'm not really interested in theology. Really? How aren't you going to find out what is light? How are are you going to find out what is acceptable to the Lord if you don't care about that? No. Your great desire to be a child of the light is to get as close to the source of light as you possibly can, to learn about it as much as you can, and to walk in it. And you know, by the way, that there is a relationship between obedience and seeing. You see, when you see a little light, you obey a little bit. But if you don't obey that little bit, and you just have it as theoretical knowledge, which you say, I'm not, I know this, but I'm not going to experience this. I know this, but I'm not going to obey this. You're not given further light. You can accumulate theory, but you don't actually receive any more of the light. It's that every little bit of light that comes your way, you're to embrace it and obey it. And God gives you further light as he goes along. Those two things work perfectly in concert. But if you reject the light that you've received, you don't receive more of it. You receive less of it. Now that, by the way... We'll, we'll get there in just a minute on this one. But of course, the, the first and perhaps primary application of all this is that we must walk in the light. That's what, you know, said in Isaiah 2.5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And you have this, this picture of the Lord pleading with us. He has every right to command us. He has commanded us to obey every part of his law. He has commanded that. It's not optional. But he also pleads with us. He says, come, Israel, my people, people that I've made my own, walk in the light. because it's good. It's a blessing. I mean, who really, naturally speaking, we've mentioned before, we like light. It's one of the reasons why we want to go on holiday, right? Because sometimes this land is very dark. We want to go to a place with more sunlight. Who loves darkness? You know who it is? Those who are sick. Those who have some sort of problem. Photophobia is a symptom of of underlying disease. Whether there's something wrong with your eyes, something wrong with your brain, something wrong with your body, it is a problem if you don't love the light. And it is a spiritual problem if you don't love the light for those who have the Holy Spirit, at least when we're in our right mind, we love the light and we want to walk in it. And the Lord is cheering us on, as it were, in all of this. First John 1, five. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And he's speaking, by the way, not just fellowship with one another and people. We have fellowship with the one who is walking in light, which is Jesus Christ himself. You can't have fellowship with Christ and walk in darkness. It's fundamentally impossible. Because where he is, is perfect light. When you come to his presence, it's light. Now you can go to want to hide in the shadows back there, but believe me, you don't have Christ with you. You can go your own way, but you're not going to have Christ with Next to you, walking with you in perfect fellowship, and join the light of his presence? No. Walk in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship with him. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, I mentioned this, of course, is for those who already believe it is only the right thing to do, that we should embrace and walk in this light it's the right thing to do. It is a thing we're commanded. It's a thing that's going to do us good. It's a thing that we should love. But for those who are not yet believers, you ought to believe while you have the light. As I mentioned that little principle, that, that it's not just you receive some light and you just wade around and, and maybe you'll get some more light and more light and more light and you keep rejecting it and you keep saying no to it and you keep trying to squash it down and, and the Lord will just give you more light. It doesn't always work that way. And very often it doesn't. And that's the warning that, John, uh, that in, in John chapter 12, the Lord gives us. You know, the people here, they're asking him questions, John uh, 12, 34. The people answered and said, we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light Lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light. That you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. You see? While you have the light, believe in the light. Those people had questions. Who doesn't? Rightly so. There are lots of questions. Yes. Yes. We are by nature creatures of darkness rather than light. And those who have so long lived in darkness, no wonder. Sometimes we don't know what to do with the light. And we have many questions about it. Very true. And the longer you walk with Jesus, the more of those questions are answered, by the way. But Jesus knows that some questions are just distractions. And in this case, he did not bother to answer a single one of them. He could have. All those questions had answers. He didn't. All he said was walk while you have having the light. Because sometimes those questions are just defense mechanisms. Sometimes they are pushing away of the light that has come to you. And Jesus is not fooled by these things. Surely, you might have questions. But I ask you, do you see the light? Then follow it. And you might say, well, I don't have all the light that I want. I want some more light before I believe. And I say, do you have any light at all? Then by all means, if you care about your eternal soul, follow that light. Embrace that light. Start walking. You see, because you've got to be near where that light is in order to get more of it. As that light passes by, and the light of the gospel shines in your heart, you run after it. As fast as you can. Before it disappears from sight. Because that is exactly what happened to these people who had all their wonderful questions. Jesus disappeared from their sight. If the light is there, there is only one thing to do. And that is to follow it. Thirdly and finally... I would say also to Christians that we should show that light around. I mean, even just in our last thing, as we were speaking to those among us who are outside of Christ, at least we could say those words. At least we could plead with them, please, if you have the light at all, if the gospel has come, if you understand that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners, of whom I am chief, and that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, if we could at least say that much but perhaps you're like me in having some compassion for those who aren't here this morning and for them god does have something because what it says in matthew 5:14 it says you are the light of the world you are the light of the world a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand but it gives light to all who are in the house so let your light so shine let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven and God has so ordained has made it to be the case that we are spread abroad throughout all the earth there's no place that it is entirely and utterly without the possibility of the witness of the gospel Various ways, but in particular in this land, in the United Kingdom, and particularly here in the Northeast, and in this very church. And it's not just this church as it exists in Lobby Hill Community Center, but as we go out in our vocations. We're not all called to be evangelists, we're not all called to be ministers, certainly not. But we're all called to be light, that much is is absolutely certain. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, good works are not going to save them. They might give thanks in one way or another that they see your good works. But those good works are only then what bring them to mind that there is a light source. And they want to hear an articulate light source because of it. These are the things that may prompt and prick their conscience as they're reminded of the fact that they are sinners, as they're around finally someone who doesn't swear and curse, someone who doesn't steal, someone who doesn't lie, and all the rest of these things. It's an amazing thing for them in this world because they live in great darkness. And that that light that they see, that they witness, is going to want them. And if the Lord is working upon them, he might just give you an opportunity to share the gospel or simply to invite them to, sh- to hear the gospel at something like Christianity Explored or a Sunday service. These people live in great darkness. And if we love them, if we care for them, if we have any compassion at all, if we understand just how bad we, of all people, should understand. If you've lived in the world, if you've lived in darkness, you ought to know how bad it is. Well then, You can be what you'll soon enough be in heaven, the source of light. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the light. Indeed, Lord, we pray that you'd make us more thankful for the light than what we are. We know that one of our worst problems is just our lack of thankfulness for our many blessings. For all the good things and the benefits that we have in Christ. We know that this world is full of darkness. We know that darkness is all around, and for some of us, we ourselves have been sources of darkness, and we have caused ourselves and others to stumble. And Lord, how we pray, forgiveness and pray that we repent from these things. Help us instead to embrace the light. And Lord, even if we have questions, even if there are, if we, have, we wonder how things can fit together in various ways, we pray, Lord, that we would all embrace that light and that we would walk after it. We would walk in it and live holy lives set apart from the world in order that we might do the world some good and that they as well might hear the saving message, might be brought in the presence of the glorious light of Jesus Christ and that we together might live in the world of perfect light in the new heavens and the new earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.